0: You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at KOPN.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. Slowly, slowly, parts of the world are beginning to poke their heads above the parapet of the new normal to see what might lie ahead. But for many of us, everything still feels too uncertain to be fully out and about. We might venture a toe out, but it feels too risky, not only for our own health, but also for those we care for and care about. Some of our arts venues are eyeing early June as a time when they can test the waters, but others will likely stay shuttered longer. The outpouring of online offerings continues unabated, from the new virtual floral exhibit at the Columbia Art League to organisations like London's National Theatre's live programme. There continues to be more available to us from our sofas than ever before. For this week's show, we're going to stop off at some of our regular haunts and take in a couple of new destinations. So if your bike helmets are all strapped on, let's head off. We'll start today's tour on Hit Street at Ragtag Cinema and find out about their plans to reopen, plus what is new in the virtual screening world, with its director, Barbie Banks. Hello Barbie. Hello. So this week we cross another milestone of our new normal with the lifting of opening restrictions on amongst other things cinemas. And I'm guessing you've been in a slew of meetings with your staff and board to work out how to keep everybody safe and comfortable. Tell me about your reopening plans. So
1: the health department has been extremely helpful in meeting with us and talking us through all the things that we should be doing and can be doing to make it safe and so We have to submit a proposal this week to the city, and they will hopefully approve it so we can open in early June. And so, you know, it's going to look a little different in Ragtag. We have plexiglass up on our beautiful box office, which is a piece of art that now has plexiglass on it. <laughs> um, and then some more hand sanitizer, a few more signs reminding you to wash your hands. And then also a little bit different procedure. So there's less contact with our staff and our patrons, not ripping your tickets. And and then we're also going to try something new where you can rent our theater out to watch our movies with your selected group of friends. So if you're still a little weary of spending two hours in a room with people you don't know, who you don't know how they've been social distancing during this time, you can rent the theater and watch the movie with the people you select and the people you know are safe in your world.
0: Presumably that's not during regular cinema hours. It's kind of during the daytime?
1: It will be during regular cinema hours. So we have two screens and we're going to be... Um, having a little bit less number of films. And so our big screen will be open to the public and our small screen will be open for private rentals with your groups.
0: And how many people can be in Little Tech?
1: We think safely you could have 20 in there and still maintain a little distance. But you know, if you have 25 friends that you've been cohabitating with, you could bring in up to 25 and we would feel safe with that. And it's gonna be $250 to rent it or 200 if you're a member with us. And so you can get your group of friends to pitch in and and rent it.
0: 20 people still sounds like a lot compared to what most of us are comfortable with. Is that the advisory of the health department going forward? What is the size of the groups that you're allowed to have in Ragtag? So you
1: can have up to 50 people if you can maintain social distancing, or 50% Of your occupancy. And so that's a little 20 people is less than 50% of our occupancy. That still allows for you to have a little distance between each other and spreading out. But my guess is, the people who are going to rent it have already been cohabitating with each other or have broke some of those social distancing rules with one another. And so... The rentals will be a little different. With our big theater, normally it holds 138 people and we're only going to be able to fit about 35 in there with social distancing. So that's a lot less than our 50% occupancy, but it does allow for six feet in between everybody, which is what they're still recommending.
0: That is a fraction of what you usually have in there. How can that be financially viable? That's going to be tough.
1: You know, we're celebrating our twentieth birthday this summer, and we have just had a great leadership that has made sure we had money in the bank. So, while it will be a little bit of hit on our finances, we still want to be able to pay our employees and feel that any sort of income we're bringing in is better than nothing. So and we just don't really know how people are going to react. So Mm. we thought let's try something and see how people if they like it or don't. And we'll reassess weekly sort of like everybody has to be doing right now. What
0: have you heard from customers about their levels of comfort?
1: Well, over this past weekend, we um, handed out popcorn to all of our members and they, everybody was just, as soon as you reopen, we're going to come back. We don't care what you're showing. And so I think our regular clientele are going to show up. I'm a little, I don't think we're going to see new patrons for a while. There's no new releases coming out. So we'll be showing retrospective films. And I think we're going to see our regulars who support us through their memberships and with you know, just because they love us. And so I think we're going to sell out most of those screenings that we do. I think the rentals will be a little rarer, just because it's a new concept. But I think with only allowing 35 people in our theater, we're going to see those sell out pretty quickly.
0: And do people need to wear masks in the theater?
1: We are recommending that they wear them, but since we are still allowing food and drink from Uprise, um, they won't be required. Our staff will have them on and our staff does prefer if you're not eating that you have them on. So we're highly recommending that you wear a mask.
0: I wondered how that was going to work because obviously Ragtag's home base is, of course, three businesses in one. So as you're on the way to the theater you're passing through a food and drink area and clearly people can't eat and drink while they're wearing masks. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh, It's been a, a wild ride because we're obviously three different businesses. The requirements for a record store and a restaurant in a cinema are all different. And so um, the health department has been helpful in helping us navigate what Uprise needs to do and what we need to do to allow food into the cinema while still following the rules of the guidelines they've laid out for a cinema. So it's been interesting. <laughs> and we haven't... Um, we haven't heard officially, but rumor is that the other theaters in town aren't opening until August. And so we will be the place to come see films. And I hope people try us out and I hope we're safe and do everything that we can to make people feel like they want to eventually venture out to the theater again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, once you're open, will the virtual offerings continue or are you going to stop those?
1: We're going to keep them at least through June because we do we do believe that June will still be a slim month with people coming into the theater and then starting in July we will offer them after it's played in our theater so we w- we're calling it duplex programming where a film will do a run in our theatre and then um, go to the virtual cinema. So people who don't have time or don't feel comfortable coming out still have an opportunity to see some of the arthouse films.
0: Have the virtual movies been a financial, not necessarily a boon, but have they helped you financially over the last couple of months?
1: They have. I mean, it's been our only source of income outside of donations from people. And it's been a real help. And we've seen people from all over the country purchasing them, which is pretty great. You know, people who used to live in Columbia that want to still support Ragtag. And so that's been kind of fun. We get a report that shows where they've been purchased. And, um, at the end of its run. And so it's, you know, the farthest away so far has been in China. Somebody rented one. So.
0: (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Um, So this week, you have a new movie out called Nothing Fancy, which I'm, again, really excited to see. Tell us about Nothing
1: Fancy. So I was not very familiar with this film until we decided to get it. But it's about Diana Kennedy. And she is a British woman who has made a living of studying food, the food of Mexico. And so she, you know, there's kind of this fine line of is it appropriation, but I think um, when we've been reading about it she does a good job of showing where the food comes from why it's important to the regions that she has chosen and it's just a it's a wild ride to see this she's five foot tall and I think 97 years old at this point and so she is a fireball of uh, wit and she's funny and she enjoys cooking and she takes you along that ride so I'm excited for people to see it. A couple other theaters opened it last week and it's been getting rave reviews and people are just really enjoying it. And it's a first time film by a director named Elizabeth Carroll, which I always really enjoy when we have first time filmmakers just to, to hear a new name out there and see what they're going to do later in their career.
0: She is fascinating. I didn't know her either. She says that often she's referred to as the Julia Child of Mexico, but she prefers the title, the Mick Jagger of Mexican cuisine. Yes.
1: <laughs> That's great.
0: <laughs> she sounds a- amazing. She did say in one interview I read with her that she had had a team of documentarians. And I don't know if it's this team, but she says they lied about her, about both the topic and the eventual paycheck. But it's, so I don't know whether it was another team of documentarians or, or whether she seems pretty complicit in this one, because obviously it's all about her and she's featured all the way through.
1: Yes, <laughs> I think it was another one because I was reading an article last night about the relationship between her and the filmmaker Elizabeth and how yeah there was like uh several months of trust building and Elizabeth cooking with her mm-hmm. to uh you know show that she was going to be this the right person to tell her story and so I'm excited to see it I haven't yet watched it but it's on my list for this coming you know weekend to watch this film. And I'm a huge fan of Food Network and Create TV and watching old Julia Child episodes. And so I'm kind of excited to see a new version of her in this film.
0: And does Hilma of Clint, does that continue this weekend?
1: Yes, it will continue. Um, It was a huge success over the weekend. I think people are just craving some new content. And so um, it will stick around for at least another week. And the other films that are leaving, they actually end today on Friday, um, you can rent them and keep them in your inbox for up to three days. So if you missed 14 or Alice or Capital in the 21st Century, you can rent them one more time and save them for over the weekend.
0: Perfect. Great to know. Barbie, thank you as always. Let's check back in again next week and see how things yeah. are going. Excellent. Thank you. Bye, Barbie. Back on our bikes again and our next stop is TRIPS Children's Theatre to chat with its director, Jill Womack. Like every other arts organisation, TRIPS has had to reinvent its summer programming. But Jill is a sort of arts innovator who will always see the silver lining. Hello, Jill Womack.
2: Hello.
0: It is lovely to have you back on Speaking of the Arts. Have you been learning to pivot in ways you thought only a ballerina could pivot over the last few weeks? Pivot?
2: Pivot is my new favorite word.
0: <laughs> I, I hadn't
2: really thought of pivoting except a pivot step for many years. But now I, yeah, understand it fully, completely, whole body experience. Yep.
0: I wonder if pivot is going to be one of those words going forward that everybody hates, like moist. <laughs> people not just, just like, even. I know the word pivot is going to just remind us of this time when everything was topsy-turvy and we didn't know how to get know. through it. So, for a lot of children, and of course adults too, acting isn't only a pastime, but it is an absolute passion and a need. And all these cancellations, I'm sure for a lot of children, feel at some level like a theft of their time. What kind of conversations have you had with your TRIPS students over the past couple of months?
2: I think they're really conflicted. What's so interesting to me is what they are now appreciating that they didn't before. You know, that the appreciation for connecting with friends, the appreciation for group gatherings, the appreciation for time spent in rehearsal or in extracurricular activities that suddenly they are saying, oh, I, I really took that for granted. I'm not going to take that for granted anymore. And it's really lovely when we Zoom in with our casts and with our classes of spending time, just a little time at the top of class and saying, how are you doing? You know, and they're all... Um, the trips kids are so resourceful and they're making tiktok videos and heaven knows what else so they uh, they don't seem to be at a loss for creative activity but um, they really miss that time to connect and be together
0: and how does it work on Zoom? I mean, you've got a lot of delays. You've got little internet blips. You've got different kind of sounds and different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. How are you able to? You know, I guess you've not done a production, but how has been? How has it been bringing all that together? We are
2: tweaking together a little show. I every week I meet with a national consortium of TYA leaders and, and artistic directors, and we are all talking about. There's one company that's doing. They've gotten the license to do their entire production of Frozen online Wow. and they're recording it through Zoom. And I'm thinking, oh my word, you all are amazing. So we are doing, uh, we'll record because there's a record on the uh, Zoom feature, but we've got kids who are submitting videos to us of um, just doing their singing or just doing their acting or just doing their choreo. And then we are able to splice them all together and layer the, the pieces together. Not me, of course, someone far brighter than myself is doing that. So um, we're finding ways to create kind of a performance piece, but it's not all, it, it's more film, you know, where I'm doing this pickup of this person and the pickup of that person and a clip of this person and that person, but it's not that fluid experience of being in the theater together.
0: How do you think this is going to change those students' view of the theatre? I mean, they've got, they're going to learn things now that will be with them for the rest of their lives.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, film acting is just so honest. The camera just sees everything. And so I think, in a way, it's helping them strip, the, the kids who are the more advanced kids, I think it's helping them really strip down and understanding that the thought, impulse connection. I think it's I think it's really wonderful what can happen um, to really pare it down. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm wanting and asking those basic actor questions and then being able to really see it. I mean, that's what you can't see in the theater. You can't see, oh, that's the choice I made or, oh, I can't tell what choice I made. So I think that they're able to filter their work and refine their work um, in a different way with Zoom. So I think as far as how it's going to change, I think the older kids who are you know, more aware of their craft are going to come back with some different skill sets and uh, some different techniques in their, in their bag, in their actor toolkit. Um, but the younger kids, I think, are just going to be excited to be back in the classroom.
0: So you usually run a series of summer camps. How are you doing that this year?
2: We're going to Zoom all of them. You know, we're so disappointed. I know the kids are disappointed. The parents are disappointed. So are we. It, it's so meaningful to be in a room together. How can you ever replicate that experience of, you know, your heartbeat, all, you, an audience's heartbeat all beats together in the theater. How, you can't re, replicate that on Zoom. Uh, so I know, I know that I, I really hear the kids and I hear the parents say, why can't it be in person? And that heartbreak is, it sits with us as well. But it's so wonderful, as I said, to be able to just keep connecting in a meaningful way, in a creative way with our students. So we are delivering everything online through Zoom. But there's some great silver linings to this. (laughs) We are able to hire some of our favorite teachers who don't live in Columbia, Missouri anymore. We have two artists, one from Universal, one from Disney World. We have an artist who directs children's theater in Colorado. We've got another artist who is a teacher in Dallas. We've got another artist who's grew up with our trips family down in Springfield. And so, um, it's just really great to get all of these wonderful teachers back on the roster together because they really are magic and they just love the kids in Excelsius, And so, uh, the kids um, are able to be in the same classroom with their cousins. So I've got one set of cousins who live here in Columbia and others that are in in, uh, Dallas. And I've got another set of cousins who are in Colorado and they are connecting with their friends that they can't play with right now. And so it's just an international – well, it's a national right now. We hope we get international, but it's a national collective of, you know, friends who've moved away and their children are in Orlando or Seattle. They're suddenly able to do trips classes again, and we love that. And it, it's also the silver lining because in this really hard time, we can provide an income for our teaching artists and provide support for them. And that's so that's always been a part of our trips family. You know, we we must support each other, and enrolling in the camp helps trips keep its lights on at the end of the day. And that's a wonderful thing because we fully intend to be standing at the end of the pandemic and and ready to open our doors again. So we just keep looking at these great silver linings, and as we look at the structure of the camp, the kids will be on Zoom in the morning from 10 to 12, and then we'll take a break. They go off Zoom, they can eat and have lunch and just take a break, and then they'll come back to Zoom from 1 to 3. So that's Monday through Friday in a morning breakout session and an afternoon breakout session. And then we take the kids and we break them out by age groups, just like we would if they were at trips physically. And then every 30 minutes, we rotate a new teacher and a new content. So they may get craft making for 30 minutes and then singing for 30 minutes and dancing for 30 minutes. And they really can change it up. And and that way it's not so taxing just being attached to the screen, you know, get away from the screen and let's dance together, get away from the screen and let's move together or make a craft together. So I think that way it's really interactive and engaging. And I know so many people worry about the kids just being fixated on the screen, but I think it, we're able to back away and and really integrate mind, body, emotions, all of that in these little breakout sessions. And then the kids at the end of the week, we can't do a a big show for family and parents and friends. And so we're making music videos and we're making, um, we're we're recording on the zoom screens their they're acting skits and you know it i think is still very meaningful and a wonderful way to stay connected with each other and stay focused on something really positive instead of the harder parts of of being isolated and shelter at home
0: is there a limit to how many students can enroll for each week's camp
2: we're trying to keep each zoom group down to about 12 students so that teachers really can focus on the screen and give individual time and really, you know, scan the screen. It makes just like a classroom. I can scan the screen and I can see everybody, which is not much different than being in person. So yeah, we're trying to keep it about 10. So it would be, if it was fully enrolled, it would be about 48.
0: And do you still have space available?
2: We do. Our descendants camp is full right now. That's our first theme. So we'll take the wonderful descendants movie collection and we've written original scripts based on those characters and the kids that's what the kids will work on and then we take themes that are familiar to them so if i'm not familiar to theater i'm familiar with this theme and therefore i i can come into the the zoom camp with a more ready willingness to risk and so we've taken trolls and onward and sonic the hedgehog for, for june and then uh <laughs> Oddly enough, our theme was sci-fi summer, <laughs> which seems wildly appropriate right now. <laughs> right. Uh, so the July camps are Star Wars and Kim Possible and Artemis Fowl, which is a wonderful book series. It's now becoming a film that will be released soon. And then Spider-Verse, which this, that's a great animated film. And then in August, we'll be doing Captain Marvel and Minions. So the themes, I think, give the kids a, a nice comfort level coming in.
0: And they can sign up for that at TRIPS.
2: Yep. You can jump online if you want an enrollment information at our website, which is www.tripskids.trypskids.com, uh, And then just scroll down under classes to camps and it'll give you information. And then we're enrolling everybody through a platform called Ticket Leap because I'm not ever sure I can actually get into the office.
0: Perfect. Okay, tripskids.com to sign up for classes. Yes. Jill, thank you so much for checking in with us. And uh, let's stay in touch over the summer as we find out how things progress. I love it. Thank you so much, Diana. Thanks, Jill. From trips, we're heading to 9th Street to the glorious Missouri Theatre Building, where its development director, Monica Palmer, is waiting for us with a nice cool gin and tonic and, I hope, another chance to get to know a female composer. Good morning, Monica. Good morning. How are you? Oh, you know, it's always fun recording speaking of the arts. I get to listen to all my (laughs) friends and, you know, always, always, always I learn something from everybody. And that is just so exciting every week when we're planning our interviews and I'm talking to everybody and they're going to tell me what they're talking about. Inevitably, I go off down research rabbit holes and I think, wow, I had no idea about any of this. So it's just such a fantastic education for me every week. So,
3: Thank you. Well, you know, and I think that you're very humble, so you may not agree with what I'm about to say, but you, you not only are, are curious and, and researching and learning, but you are also, uh, inspiring the arts organizations in your community. I know I speak for the Missouri Symphony, but also I think other arts organizations are just inspired by your interest and your curiosity and, I think sometimes the best way to change hearts and minds is not to go on a diatribe or try to teach or educate people about the arts, but to ask a question. And you asked me a question a couple <laughs> weeks ago when we first chatted about Barbara Strozzi and you said, why? Uh, isn't she as popular as Mozart or Beethoven or any of those dusty old white men composers? And it, you know, it just, it stuck in my head. And I started thinking about female composers and other marginalized artists in the music industry. I mean, we're, we're still struggling, uh, with this, this idea of representation and, 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 you know, little girls being able to look out at the, you know, the orchestra and see an equal balance of men and women as performers. But also, you know, when we think of composer, What's the first thing that pops into your mind? You think of an old dead white guy, right? Right. <laughs> but there are a lot more, uh, people, artists who have been and who are composing music. And so I wanted to shake things up a little bit this week and do what I think. Cause you asked, how do we prevent this from, from happening? Or how do we get these gals like Barbara Strozzi, you know, and Claire Schumann and, and, and into the, the current conversation? And you know what? I don't know that that's ever going to be a realistic goal of, equaling the fame of female composers of yesterday with the male composers of yesterday. But what we can do is start where we are, use what we have, and learn from the past. So if we start talking about contemporary female composers right now, (laughs) then we've got a good chance of raising some awareness. And there are so many. Yes, yeah. And you've got another question here, and that is, what is music intended to do? What, What are we supposed to take from this particular art form? And I think one thing... In times like this, uh, that music can do is help us process things that go beyond language, that go beyond something that, that we can understand in a institutionalized or, or, you know, rational way. It has to be visceral. It has to affect you deeply. And I think that that's what composers have always been doing. But I think now, you know, contemporary composers, there's a lot of stuff that we can't process in a rational way. It has to be felt and it has to be understood deeply and profoundly. So I want to introduce you to a new composer this week. She's not new. she's uh, She's been around for a while. Um, her name is Nikiru Okoye, and she's an exciting voice in some contemporary classical repertoire. Her music is notable for its accessible style. It's it's so appealing. Audiences just love it. Uh, She combines contemporary classical, African American, popular music, and West African influences. It's all kind of mixed up in there. But she asked an amazing question, going back to this idea of, you know, prompting change by asking the right question. She was in an interview and she asked the question, Isn't it interesting that the top piece that you think of as a black opera is by Gershwin? (laughs) <laughs> he's white, and he's Jewish. But you know, it's it's back to that kind of thought of, you know, what do you think a composer is? Who do you what does a composer look like? Who is a composer? Who is able to compose? So, so, uh, you know, in Kiro, she she grew up in a musical space, she started playing the piano at eight, she started writing music at 13. So she knew early on that this was her calling, if you will. Uh, she was in New York, but um her mom was African American, and her dad was Nigerian. So she spent part of her time in the States, part of her time in Nigeria. So she kind of got different influences, cultural influences that, that show up in her music and in her studies. You know, she, she really challenged herself to be the voice of the unheard and the, the marginalized. And she's had pieces commissioned by orchestras all over. And one of her most famous works in 2014 is her Harriet Tubman, When I Crossed That Line to Freedom. It was an opera, and it was premiered by American Opera Projects. And it really, it examines the life of uh, enslaved Africans living in plantations in the South. And in the music of that time period, it comes through. It's so beautiful. You know, you've got not only the the orchestral music, but the, the voices, just the, the stories and the lyrics. It just, it's just incredibly moving. And Okoye said about choosing Tubman as a subject, she said, I wanted to write an opera about a woman who did great things and survived. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, I love that quote so much. Um, she's she's done some other important works, which I think are sadly very timely. Uh, Right now, uh, where we are, because her work Invitation to a Die-In was commissioned and premiered by Mount Holyoke Symphony Orchestra, and it was commissioned in memory of Trayvon Martin and other young black men who have lost their lives to violence. And the text for Invitation was written by David Cote, and the performance of the work includes... You can actually find YouTube videos. I encourage you to find it because it's 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 a powerful piece right now and always. But the percussion, what she does with percussion in this music, imitating gunshots and violence, and just that kind of visceral, you know, it just it, it touches you on a on a deep level and makes you really feel things that maybe you wouldn't feel if you were just listening to the news or seeing images. Our brains are really good at tuning out things that will hurt us. So when we're reading an article or we're looking at an image or watching a news story, sometimes it doesn't get all the way through to that place where we need to process some of these harder things like violence against each other. And so this music is pretty powerful. And so that's, that was one of the things that she's, she's very noted for was this, this uh, 2017 work called Invitation to a Die-In.
0: Well, let's listen to the first couple of minutes of Invitation to a Die-In by Nkiro Okoye with text by David Kate, performed here by the Mount Holyoke Orchestra, conducted by maestro Ang Tianhui with baritone Damien Norfleet. That was just a snippet of Enkiru Okoye's invitation to a die Tell us a little bit more about her other works, Monica.
3: For the 250th anniversary of the founding of Charlotte, North Carolina, she was commissioned by the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra to write an orchestral work to commemor- commemorate the city's history, And so it was a residency. So she actually moved there and they said, okay, so we want you to live here. We want you to get to know Charlotte, feel it, taste it, you know, go to the restaurants, meet the people. And they, they gave her a list of people to interview and they weren't just museum curates or uh, professors at the university. They were from all walks of life, from all different sections, cultural sections. And so she got to really hear the voices of Charlotte and she put them together. So she scrapbooks, she digitally scrapbooks before she starts composing. And um, so she put together all of these influences and images of Charlotte and what she got to learn while she was there during this residency. And it's just so beautiful and diverse, and it tells the history of Charlotte, but not in a precious way, not in a, look at how great we are, we're the best, or whatever. It's like, you know, we live through some really scary stuff, and not just past, but current events and things like that, and looking at it from a very clear lens of this is who we are, and why we are. And so it also it holds a reference to a victim of police violence with the percussion section of the work referencing uh, Keith Lamont Scott. So again, very powerful stuff. I I think the piece is only 12 minutes long. But it, you know, I think this showcases what contemporary symphonic music is capable of doing. And I think, you know, in some respects, the classical music of yesterday and the symphonic music of yesterday that we often associate with the idea of classical music, it was maybe doing that for their time. But maybe part of that feeling of we can't really reach that or we can't access it is because it doesn't speak to us living lives right now in 2020. And so maybe we need to start exploring the music today and the composers today, especially the female ones. <laughs> I
0: I would love that. And I think that's the difficulty is when you are someone like the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, you have your existing base, and they grew up loving the works of, you know, Gershwin mm. or Brahms or whoever it was in the past. But then you want to appeal to a new audience. And these, these people, like Kiro Okoye and modern composers. Sometimes it's a little challenging for, for people, but sometimes it's not. I mean, like you say, Inkiro Okoye has got beautiful music and lots mm. of the female composers, I think, have been, as we know, they've been marginalized and underrepresented. Right. And I would love to hear that kind of music being presented by a modern symphony orchestra.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, there's there's beauty in upholding traditions and honoring where you've come from. There is beauty in that, you know, and I love the fact that those musical pieces and experiences that the older generations expect from an organization like the Missouri Symphony, you know, it's great to offer them that safe space when so much of our world is changing so rapidly and, Mm -hmm. you know, at least this one thing is familiar to them but I think they are also eager to see new audiences and and young people getting inspired and excited about music and and experiencing what they experienced in the power of music. So if we can all come together, maybe blending programs like a little bit of traditional with a little bit of contemporary. I think what we need now more than anything is just to be able to come together in the same space and share experiences. And so when it can happen again safely, we've got some exciting things ahead of us.
0: (laughs) Well, I look forward to that. I would love to if we could have Inkiru Okoye come to Columbia oh and gosh. talk to us. And, uh, and dream come true, yes, it really. would
3: be amazing. Well, and for for young people, just imagine you know a young African American girl sitting in in the Missouri Theater with like a school program or an outreach, you know, and being able to see someone powerful and amazing and magical like Inkiru, you know, just just think about the seeds that would be planted. You know, yeah, that's just it gives me chills.
0: <laughs> well, well, make that happen, Monica.
3: I will. Okay. <laughs>
0: And, and that is us out of time once again. Monica, thank you so much. I love hearing about female composers. It just fills my heart with joy every week.
3: I'm so glad.
0: <laughs> we'll chat again next week. Thank you, Monica. Okay,
3: sounds good. Bye-bye.
0: We might as well leave our bikes at the Missouri Theatre as it's only a short stroll up the road to our next visit today, Skylark Bookshop and its owner, Alex George. Good morning, Alex.
4: Hi Diana, how are you today? You
0: know, I feel like I should just start all our chats with congratulations, because in almost <laughs> any week, the accolades for Skylark and your latest novel just keep piling up. And I know as a fellow Brit, it can be tough dealing with Americans' love of giving praise so fulsomely, but do tell us about Skylark's latest accolade.
4: So we were thrilled, thank you for um, for mentioning it, we were <laughs> thrilled to be featured Um There's a publication called Wanderlust Travel, which is an online thing. And they uh, did a feature earlier this week about the 25 best independent bookstores in the country. And we were astonished and absolutely delighted to find ourselves on the list. So, um, yeah, we were very happy about that. So we kind of feel as if maybe we're we're doing something right (laughs)
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, it's got famous Beatnik Hangouts, City Lights in San Francisco is on there. And it's got Mm -hmm. the globally renowned Strand Bookstore, of course, in New York on there. Nashville's Parnassus Books, which is owned by another author, Anne Pratchett. So you were really amongst an incredible collection of bookstores across the country.
4: Yeah, we really were. And, uh, you know, to to have hit that list after 18 months, I guess we're coming up for nearly two years now. (laughs) It feels less than that. It does feel slightly um unbelievable but we're absolutely delighted so
0: what is the general state of independent bookstore ownership in america i mean full kudos to you for being in the top 25 list but i mean how many are there how difficult is it being an independent bookstore today
4: well it's um i mean there are a ton of them and what's been very interesting in the last several years is the turnaround if you'd asked me this question back in about 2006 then the picture was very gloomy and that was when that um, I can never remember the name. There's some online retailer that apparently sells books. And they <laughs> were doing they they were doing quite well, but there was also this was before while Borders was still with us and Barnes and Noble and people were predicting the end of the book because of eBooks and all of this kind of thing. And there's been an incredible renaissance in the last four or five years. And and so, and so at that point, independent bookstores were closing at an absolutely alarming rate. And people were sort of predicting the end of it all. But since then, there has been this wonderful resurgence. And now, independent bookselling is an incredibly healthy industry. And there are more bookstores opening all the time. And I think one of the reasons, I mean, everyone has their own theories as to why this may be. But, but my, my sense is that People really are beginning to understand more about the values of localism, the values of having face-to-face interactions with people and the experiential benefits and delights of actually going into an independent bookstore and discovering books and having conversations with actual people rather than relying on algorithms online. And, uh, you know, there was a novelty value to that for a while, but I think that that is wearing off. And uh, so, yeah, we, we are seeing a real uptick throughout the country. Now, that's not to say that COVID 19 hasn't mm. <laughs> posed certain challenges to us. Uh, you know, Skylark hasn't opened its doors for nine weeks. So, we, um, but one of the things about booksellers is that they're, they're an, a smart and innovative bunch of people. And so, we're all finding ways of surviving.
0: When Skylark was nothing but a twinkle in your eye, what convinced you that it would work in Colombia? Because I have to admit, I was kind of sceptical and I thought, boy, that's really an adventurous undertaking. But you have proved that you knew what you were talking about. What made you think it could work?
4: Well, really, the, I mean, it's something that I have thought about for a long time. And the fact that we are in a town of over 100,000 people with three universities, you know, full of very, very smart readers and writers. And there wasn't an independent bookstore that sold new books. Obviously, we've got Yellow Dog and, you know, we're, we we love Joe and we're friends with him and as well as his neighbors. Uh, and then there's Barnes & Noble out in the mall. But the fact that there wasn't anything else was was staggering in a way. And so it seemed that there was just a gap in the market. And then allied to that was the response that we had received from putting on the first, I guess the first two or three, I lose count after a while, book festivals, the Unbound Book Festival. And the community was so generous and so supportive of that effort that was really what made me think oh well I think maybe maybe we could do this.
0: Well you have done it with wonderful aplomb as you do everything and so congratulations again <laughs> on, on, well, the, on the accolade. <laughs> so so uh, moving on to the books we're going to talk about this week tell us what you have for us.
4: So, um, one of the books that I wanted to talk about is, is one I'm actually, I haven't quite finished it yet, but I'm listening to it on audio and it's called You Never Forget Your First. And it is a biography of George Washington. And one of the interesting things about this book is the author is called Alexis Coe and she is the first woman to have written a biography of Washington in decades. And it's been fascinating to listen to her, in addition to telling the story of washington's life to listen listen to her to sort of talk about that as well and she does um very much this entire book she's sort of drawing this sort of distinction between her way of looking at things and everybody else's and she she talks about some of the the grand old men of the sort of biographers who have who have written these eight nine hundred page biographies in the past. Of Washington and she is very funny she refers to them as the thigh men because they're all obsessed (laughs) (laughs) with Washington's physical attributes the way that he was able to stay on a horse Um, and so what she does is, is in contradistinction to all of that she talks about other things and so there's less there's less talk about for example getting into the nitty-gritty of the minutiae of the battles of the uh, war of independence and she talks more about what he did with spies it's very very interesting and certainly presents a different kind of a view to the generally acknowledged hero worship that goes on and she asks some very awkward and interesting questions and particularly about his um ownership of slaves which mm-hmm. he was very reluctant to give up at any point and in fact only on his death were his slaves freed and she doesn't she doesn't turn away from the sort of hypocrisy of all of that and some of the more difficult the more difficult questions and one of the interesting things about this book which is again different from the others is that most biographies and particularly presidential biographies are rather heavy formal plodding things and this is not uh, it's a. Uh, it's much much shorter than most biographies i think it's 304 pages long as opposed to seven or 800 pages and it's very breezy it really reads like a novel but that is not to say that it's not full of useful information and interesting stories so highly recommended uh, and just a very different take on washington and if you're the sort of person who maybe has always thought oh I should read more history but never quite sure where to start this would be a really excellent entry point
0: perfect and then we have a novel called the women in black which just at a cursory glance reminds me of are you being served which is a British 1970s sitcom I don't know if Americans ever watched it
4: it is absolutely are you being served and you and I are probably the only two people (laughs) in Colombia who would get that reference so I wasn't going to mention it but yes yes it is so it's written by Madeline. St John and it was actually written probably about 30 years ago now and it tells the story of three women who work in the dress department of a Sydney department store. Now I'll be honest, it's not my usual sort of thing <laughs> but there is a, there's a, a line on the front by Hilary Mantel who of course author of Wolf Hall uh, and that trilogy and she says this is the book I most often give as a gift to cheer people up and that was sort of what snagged my attention and so i picked it up and i read it and i breezed through it it's very it's very funny it's very light it's brilliantly written and it's just super fun i mean you know sydney in the 50s hmm. <laughs> it's it's a little as i say a little off my usual thing but i really enjoyed it and it's a, it's a nice diversion and again you know in these times um I don't know, maybe Australia in the 1950s isn't the worst place to be. So that comes uh, highly recommended as well. It's a nice quick read.
0: And Madeline St. John died back in 2006, but she was the first Australian woman to be shortlisted for the Booker Prize, which is a literary prize I always follow every year. It wasn't for this book. It was for a different book that she wrote. And she only started writing when she was in her 50s, which is always nice to hear that you can rediscover yourself. <laughs> <laughs> And then the final book you have is a children's book for us today.
4: Yes, and I and I've never sort of talked about children's books, but you know thinking about people at home with their kids and what on earth do we do with them all, then this is a, this is a wonderful book called My Busy Day and it is there are there are zero words in this book. It's just uh it's a board book and it's page after page of quite detailed illustrations and it's wonderful to sit down with small kids so between 2 and 5 and there's a lot of detail on every page, and there are recurring characters who show up page after page. And it's a wonderful way in which you can, um, if you're very small, you can just place it. So it's almost like Where's Waldo, and you can spot the various characters on each page. But there's also an ability for slightly older children to create their own narratives and to tell the story about what's going on. And and it's just it's a, the, the kind of book that you can really, and I say you, you and your kid can really sort of lose yourselves in for for a long time. And uh, yeah, it's it's super fun.
0: Well, thank you so much, Alex. Let's chat again next week and see what's new and noted in the literary world.
4: Thanks, Diana.
0: Thank you. Our last stop today is with Jennifer and John Hempel. Jennifer is the assistant professor and musical theatre programme chair and distinguished faculty honoree at Stevens College. You might have seen her reprising her Broadway role in last fall's production of Mamma Mia at Stevens' Macklenburg Theatre. Her husband, John Hempel, is also an actor and moved to Columbia just a couple of months ago when the touring production of Dear Evan Hansen he was in came to an abrupt stop. Well, hello, Jennifer and John Hempill. Hello. Hello. Now, it is a delight to have you on the show for the first time. I know you both have a a storied background as actors on Broadway and films, too, and television. In your case, John, I know. And and Jennifer, Mm -hmm. you've been here for the best part of a year. And John, I guess you've been here... Only full time since coronavirus closed down That's Broadway right. <laughs> <laughs> and all the touring productions. Now, Jennifer, obviously, like everywhere else in the world, here in Columbia, all our theatre productions went from postponed to cancelled in a couple of weeks. And for Stevens, you lost the whole rest of your season, including the Stevens Summer Okaboji program. Um, and you had to decide what to do with the Summer Performing Arts Institute. So, talk a little bit about how you managed to navigate this constantly changing scenario.
5: Absolutely. You know, it was really all hands on deck. We knew we had to work expeditiously uh, and efficiently. What we did with the Summer of Performing Arts Institute is is we did, in fact, make it virtual. Uh, It's not online. It is online, but it's actually virtual and it's synchronized. So the students are taking the same courses that they would have with master teachers from across the United States. And they are live with these instructors daily, two and a half hours in the morning, two and a half hours in the afternoon. And so far, so good. It's really working out much better than I think even I anticipated, which is wonderful and then the students who were to go to Okaboji were given two options basically they could defer Okaboji, or they could work with outside directors who would have been at Okaboji and an outside musical director and they can put together a one-person cabaret style show which we think is an amazing opportunity we hope that some of them will consider entering these shows in French festivals and possibly being able to use them you know to, to garner momentum in between jobs when they move to the these, um, you know, more major metropolitan areas. So we're excited about the options that we came up with and we're excited that we were able to implement them in, in short order.
0: And are the public able to view any of these, either the cabaret shorts or the Summer Performing Arts Institute's performances?
5: You know, at present, the answer is is no. The Summer Performing Arts Institute is really process-based, and we were not planning on having any performances anyway, so that the students could really work to sharpen and hone their craft, and so that it wasn't um, pending a, a performance The one person shows will likely be presented live at some point when we come back to campus. And at that point in time, yes, I I think that we, we would anticipate having an audience. If the, you know, the climate permits that the students will be videoing them at this point in time, I don't believe that there is a plan to release it virtually, but I do hope that, that we can have some attendance, audience attendance when the students perform these shows live.
0: John, you were on tour with Dear Evan Hansen when all of this mm-hmm. went down. I'm curious about the timeline of the touring schedule collapsing. Like, what was the process that you all went through be- between one minute having a whole season ahead of you and the next season being at home and, and sequestered?
6: You know, it's, it, it was such a bizarre time because we didn't have a timeline. It was so fast. Obviously, we, we knew that there was a pandemic and we, we were making adjustments on the road, we weren't doing stage door that had been canceled at the end. And there were a lot of things that uh, we were adjusting, but we didn't really have a concept that uh, this, that we would be sent home. We were in Salt Lake City on, um, it was March 12th, Thursday night. We basically got the call that that run was going to stop th- through the weekend, but there was all indication that we would continue to Omaha, the next city of course, that did not happen. And then every city after that was canceled. And now we're up up to through Chicago right now, which is November 1st. And we're getting updates all the time. So it was really fast. It was it was kind of abrupt and scary, but even though there was a lot of communication uh, with the actors and with the crew and everyone, but, you know, our producers and the community, the Broadway community at large, both uh, in New York and on the tours, had to make some fast, difficult decisions, and they made the right decisions, obviously, so, but it was, it was odd and scary and all those things
5: and you actually took a red eye home i did
6: i got out as soon as i could i I, they said that we were we were uh not continuing in salt lake city and jen was like john get on a plane and so and i and i did um because i was going to hopefully be able to drive to omaha from here uh but like a you know we all know that did not happen so it was fast and furious
0: it's just the, in my imagination, the idea of all these actors all over the country, all on tour. I mean, all of those big Broadway shows, I mean, they've, they're out in the country somewhere. Suddenly there's kind of this sound of tyres screeching to a stop and <laughs> no one has anything to do any longer. Everything is over and you're mm. all trying to find your way home. I mean, just an an incredibly unprecedented time. Looking back on those key moments in March, I think the closure of Broadway on March the 12th was one of those shockwave moments when the virus got really, real, really fast. What were your thoughts when that happened?
6: Jennifer, you know, I, I, John. <laughs> I, I, sorry, it, it, I think, I, think I, I paused there, certainly because yeah. um, it was it, – it, it takes a lot to close down Broadway. Right. You know, that is something that, you know, both of us having worked in New York on Broadway – It is a big deal when a show is, even a show is, one show is just canceled for the night. So to see it shut down completely, I think it was, it's a big deal. And and to a lot of performers and and crew and to everyone, it's obviously it's our livelihood. And so,
5: you know, it's tricky too as we spy back, you know, looking at the amount of time it was closed um, after 9-11, you know, it was very it was a very brief pause. And then also we had Hurricane Katrina in there. And I think there was maybe one one or two days blizzard canceled or, or blizzard sort. or something, <laughs> you know, but it's it's just so incredibly rare. And and for it to be this extended amount of time and for the picture to be what it is going forward, it's unfathomable. And, you know, our our whole network of friends is in New York. We're in communication with them often. And um, it is a a difficult situation at best.
0: What are your comfort levels? Obviously, New York theatres are small and compact, and the green rooms, I'm guessing, are as small and compact as the auditoria are. How do you feel about going back into a green room with actors?
6: I think it's going to have, we're going to have to have, first of all, we're going to have to all understand what the, Rules are what, what we need to do to keep each other safe. And I really do think there's going to have to be a lot of advancement in the actual containment of the virus and testing is going to have to be rampant. Uh, it's going to take a lot. It really is to, to get us back into the theater and to then to get the audiences back into the theater. I know that. Many performers are concerned because we, you're right, the green rooms are close quarters. The, the work that we do on stage is close, intimate work. And so there is a lot of risk for the performers. So it's not only the, the audience members going in, but it's the performers. And the look of Broadway is going to change, at least in the short term, one to two years. They may limit the amount of audience. Things may adjust in future shows that are being produced. So things will have to adjust in some fashion.
5: I think we're going to see considerably smaller shows. I think we're going to see simplified shows um, with design elements. And, you know, the thing that concerns me for John going back is really outside of the theater. I believe in a contained space, we, we can do pretty well. But what you can't account for is the coming and the going, the relying on public transportation it's those things the going to the deli the exchange of money the touching of a doorknob getting from point a to point b that's to me what's so tricky once you get to the theater certainly everyone will, will take extreme precautionary measures but what happens outside of those protected bubbles to me that's where the x factor lies and, and that's what's really um, well frightening to be honest
0: Do you think that Broadway comes back before the touring programs or do you think touring programs will be back first?
6: In my gut, I feel like the touring programs will come back first. I think the fact that our tour, Dear Evan Hansen, can go to smaller markets where there has been a a less uh, footprint of the virus, you might see those theatres opening up sooner. New York is just very challenging because they are smaller theaters. The passageways to get to the theaters are small. There's not wide open space. Mm-hmm. So I, I do feel that touring will open up before Broadway.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: So for the time being, John, you just kind of sit tight in Columbia. Is there anything else that you're able to do?
6: <laughs> yeah, I do. I've been doing a lot of gardening, <laughs> and, that's, and that's been fantastic. Um, you know, it's the toughest part of being on tour is being away from home. So to be quite honest, we had the first month or so, we had to... Work to not feel so guilty that we were enjoying our time together, uh, yes. <laughs> and and so so that has been a good part of the the very terrible situation yes. we are all in for us.
5: We we had actually been apart for about four years. I mean, we'd seen each other, but he was doing uh, School of Rock on Broadway, so that w- that took up a few years, and then you know right into De- Dear Evan Hansen, and so. You know, we've been ships passing in the night, you know, once a month or so (laughs) for for a long time. (laughs) So it it is nice to be together, but but certainly the situation is incredibly dire and uh, in no way are we celebrating the situation. But we are celebrating being able to, to see each other.
0: Well, I would love to have you both back on the show at some future point and talk more Great. about Broadway and your careers and what you know what brought you to this point. But for now, we are out of time. So John Hempel and Jennifer Hempel, thank you so much. And we'll chat again soon. Thank Absolutely, you, Diana. A
5: pleasure.
0: And once again, that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more news from the local art scene. Until then, stay safe and stay arty, Columbia.